sure you need money, and that, that's the left-hand symbol, but you need more than that. Money is necessary, but not sufficient. So what the yin-yang metaphor presents is a, a complementary perspective of, of money and life. And that, that's what David and I tried to do with this book. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, we had another fantastic conversation, and I'm extremely excited for you to hear this conversation. However, if you can help me, if you want to support the show, I have an ask. If you can head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that would help. And if you have a colleague, friend, or someone else who you think might enjoy these conversations, please send them an episode and have them listen. All right, so who was on today's show? Well, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to the two authors of Your Total Wealth, Dr. Lyle Sussman and Dr. David Dubofsky. Dr. Sussman is the former chairman and professor of management, college business, University of Louisville. He received his PhD from Purdue University. He has published over 60 scholarly articles and is a best-selling business author with more than a million copies sold with his 16 books in print. Lyle has taught, lectured, and consulted around the world. You will see just how well-versed Lyle is during our conversation. He was also selected as the who's who in business higher education. Dr. David Dubofsky is an author as well. He has authored three books, Your Total Wealth, which we're going to talk about today, Derivatives, which is Evaluation and Risk Management, and Options and Financial Futures. As you can see, David has vast amounts of knowledge in the technical side of finances, where he taught for over 40 years at the university level and published over 40 articles in academic journals. Prior to retiring in 2020, David held several faculty positions at numerous universities. And as David speaks, you can hear just the vast in depth of the knowledge he possesses. During this conversation, we really dive into their book on how do we create total wealth. Total wealth is when we transcend the numbers and we look at the human behind the numbers. But what I really appreciate about their book and their approach is they they don't ignore the numbers and just focus on the human side or they don't just focus on the numbers. They do a wonderful job blending in these two concepts to what they call the yin and the yang. We talk about why money is necessary, but not sufficient to live the good life. And we talk about how to cultivate balance in work, life, all while still achieving our financial goals. I really enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Lyle and David, as we talk about how to cultivate total wealth in our lives. I hope you enjoy this conversation. David and Lyle, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to hear your yin and yang versus the financial world, which we'll get into. So welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Let's talk about the yin and yang metaphor and symbol. 
on the cover of the book, we have the yin-yang symbol. That, that really represents the way David and I are looking at wealth. Sure, you need money, and that, that's the left-hand symbol, but you need more than that. Money is necessary, but not sufficient. So what the yin-yang metaphor presents is a, a complementary perspective of money and life. And that, that's what David and I tried to do with this book. Just reading your guys' bios, it's interesting to see how well you must work together. And I'm sure through this journey, there's ups and downs. But before we get into, because I want to dive into the yin and yang, I think let's first back up a bit. And from your guys' perspective, and I'm interested in hearing from both of you, when you think of the word wealth, we have the dictionary definition. But I'm curious, through this journey, has your definition of wealth evolved, your perspective of wealth I ask this because it's interesting. When you look at the origin root word of wealth, it actually stemmed from well-being, which is interesting. And I think our social construct of the narrative wealth has changed over these years. So what is your perspective or your own personal definition of wealth? You are correct, Sean, that we're we're all on a journey. And uh, the older I get, the more I see that the Midas touch which some people think is good news, is really a horror story. The closer we get to our own mortality, the more we realize that there really might be an end to our life, we start questioning what is really, really important. And that's when the concept of wealth or personal concepts of wealth, I think, extend beyond dollars and cents. Yeah, wealth isn't just about financial wealth. It's also about non-financial wealth. And that's why we have total wealth as both financial and non-financial. So money is good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with money, although sometimes money can cause its own problems, of course. Just having money doesn't cure many problems. And many people have enough money that they can hire financial planners to help them manage their money. That's how much money they have. And yet, at the same time, they can be unhappy. And and this is what our research found, because Lyle and I did a survey about 10 years ago of financial planners asking them about their non-financial life coaching activities. And we found that virtually almost every financial advisor has at one time had clients who needed more than just financial advice. Uh, These clients had problems, personal problems, family problems, and they the clients drew their financial planners into this. So so financial planners, on average, uh, they spend about one quarter of their time, maybe more, dealing with their clients' non-financial problems, with their life problems. So wealth is not just about financial wealth. We defined wealth and also as financial and non-financial. When you were coming up with this idea with the book, maybe it's the yin and yang, but I also want to bring in, uh, Lyle, when you talked about mortality, because I think you're right when, when we're faced with a crisis, whether it's mortality or severe illness, it allows us perhaps to pause and reflect on the things that are important. Does coming to terms with the idea that someday we will all pass or being okay with our own mortality have anything to do with embracing your total wealth? Absolutely. Uh, if, if, if you look at what's happened the last 18 months with the pandemic, and if you look at what people are, are doing regarding personal decisions they're making about their life course, there, there, there's a reason why there's a phrase out called the great resignation. Mm-hmm. People are, are, are questioning 
what do I want to do with the years I have remaining? Am, am I willing to go on a punch a clock for 40 hours a week? Am I willing to do something that doesn't feed my soul? Yes, I have to put a roof over my table. I have to feed my kids. I have to pay for expenses to simply survive. But I want more than that. And I, I think we are witnessing that with our friends, with our neighbors, with the economy. So the, the concept of total wealth in many respects is coming at an opportune time. Yeah, the pandemic has definitely changed people's views about what's important. So I'd like to read our conclusion to you because I think it addresses your, the, your question. And our conclusion is when you die, the final test of how you lived your life will not be the size of your financial portfolio. It will be the legacy you created while you lived. Life is short, but legacies endure. So I think that answers your question about uh, financial wealth versus the non-financial life types of lessons that we offer in our book. Perhaps that should be one of the first things we talk about as financial planners when we deal with clients. Well, well Sean, it's interesting you would mention that. The book's been out now about a, a year, and David and I have received some very, very, very wonderful and powerful feedback and, and comments from the, the professional advising community, and, and we're very proud of it. It's very flattering and proud. And one of the things we're hearing is that our research, which was published in Journal of Financial Planning, which was the impetus for the book, is really starting to ch change the discourse, the dialogue among financial planners. So we are, I think we're in a new era about financial planning and the concept of wealth. Yeah, and I think, you know, we require leaders like yourselves to come out with these evidence-based sound books that and ideas that we can rely upon. I, I want to get into this yin and yang emotion and financial literacy. But before that, I'm curious for both of you to answer this question. I find often whenever we embark in a difficult or challenging task or journey, uh, such as writing a book, we experience many challenges, excitement, setbacks, difficulties, so many different events I can imagine writing a book. From what I understand, you guys both retired recently. We had a call before this one, and I understand you both retired. When you look back and observe your own journeys writing this book, now after writing it, what, if anything, has changed from your perspective of total wealth, which might include retirement, or just in general, what have you learned from yourselves about the idea of total wealth after writing this book that you didn't expect? Let me pick that up first and let me compliment you on that question. That's a Zen-like Zen -like question, <laughs> Sean. What I learned in writing this book is I, I had a great deal of respect for David even before we started writing this book. Um, this, this man has a CFA. He, he has literally written the book on derivatives. He worked at the SEC. <laughs> I did not randomly choose a co-author. I was looking for someone who could up my game. And uh, I don't mind making this a public uh, praise uh, towards David in this uh, podcast. He has taught me a great deal about finance <laughs> in ways I never thought I would. The other thing I learned in this last co-authorship experience is the importance of partnership, the importance of trust, the importance of being able to rely on someone because uh, partnership is, is a, you are taking a risk and risk is something that financial advisors know something about. Both of our names are on this book. We, we affect one another. So royalties aside and publication aside, 
David and I are mutually sharing a risk. And I think one message for everyone watching this podcast is be very careful who you invest mm -hmm. your trust in. Yeah, I think I've learned a lot about trust also because uh, we it, it is a partnership and I can tell you that it's a very, very loose partnership. We have not gotten bogged down with all sorts of documents and legal uh, issues. You know, it's it's pretty transparent. It's very, it's totally transparent what we're doing with each other. And uh, writing the book, you know, was a lot of fun. Thank you, Lyle, for your, your comments. For me, I mean, it was a joy. I mean, the way our process worked was I mean, we first identified what we thought were the most important terms in finance. And basically during the lockdown period of the pandemic, just about every day I would sit down and challenge myself to write about one of these topics in less than 400 words. Lyle was always challenging me to write for the mass audience because I have this tendency to write for academics, A, or B, for students of finance, but to be writing it for the rank and file people out there was uh, was a challenge. But I would write these uh, little financial essays and definitions and discussions about why these terms are important, feed them to Lyle. And Lyle would follow up with what I thought were just brilliant little stories, little essays that were based on my uh, on, on on the financial terms, but they were just very very insightful on how to live a happier life and and those lessons. Just about every one of those lessons applies to just about every possible reader. I think any reader could open up the book and read one of those life lessons and stop and think about how it applies to them and how they can use that life lesson to just basically be happier and have a more fulfilling life. As you guys are answering this, despite we are miles and miles, even a country away, I could just feel the the trust or the the respect for you two as you're talking, which I think is quite quite nice to see after you guys have embarked on this journey together. Not thank you for that. And uh, maybe one of the practical lessons an advisor and a, and a potential client can take from this podcast is, if an advisor can create that kind of bond that you're picking up right now with a client and vice versa, it's going to be a very successful relationship. And it's going to be a relationship that results in total wealth of mutual trust, of mutual respect. And it says that regardless of market volatility, I'm into David's domain right now, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but there will always be market volatility. But that doesn't mean that advisors and clients have to go crazy. Yeah. You know, I wrote down just trust and transparency. And it's interesting you say, you know, you kind of maybe didn't skip over, but you didn't pay as much attention to the formal legal documents to formalize this partnership. You you relied on something a much more important, trust and transparency. And I think that transcends beyond the financial advisor and client relationship into all of our relationships. So thank you. So I want to get into this yin and yang. And David, we're going to start with you here. So uh, from what I understand and know from the book and your background is you're the numbers guy. You wrote a book on derivatives. Most of our heads, we might have to take some Tylenol after reading a book on derivatives because those are complex calculations. I understand that you feel financial literacy is important. I see it from your bio and just what I've read about you online. What was it that made you curious to involve Lyle's side, more of the human side, in conjunction with the financial literacy? And I ask this because I look at the state of our industry and we seem to love financial literacy, which people mean well, but we can see from behavior change that if we're just shoving people 
information and hoping that they change their behaviors and totally ignoring what's going on underneath that's driving those behaviors, the thought, feelings, beliefs, and so forth, it's difficult to make change. So I'm curious, David, what allowed you to be curious and accept this idea? Maybe there's more than just financial literacy. The background was just some innocent conversations Lyle and I had in the in the business building at the University of Louisville. We would frequently just meet up in the hallway while drinking coffee and just start chatting. And you know, just look questions and, and comments would just pop into our conversation. And that was what led to our initial survey that we did of financial planning and, and life coaching. And they were little things like the things I remember was saying to Lyle that, you know, my father never, ever talked to me or my brother about family finances. And that, and that led into the idea that people in general have a lot of problems talking about money and finances, not only to their family, but to just anybody. And it was, it was that one of those, that observation and another observation was when I recalled a financial planner once saying to me that the most important tool in her uh, toolbox of being a financial planner was a box of Kleenex because clients would come to her and open up about their finances and their financial situation and their personal situation and break into, into tears. So, uh, I mean, th- those were the factors that led, led us down this path. It, it certainly was not pre-planned. It was just one of these serendipitous kind of moments that led to us, you know, doing the work that we did in, in doing our research and then ultimately writing the book. Lyle brought up this book 10 years ago, but at the time being an academic, I was, I pushed it aside saying that I, I'd rather be writing for a more academic audience, which frankly is what academics get rewarded for is writing mm-hmm. papers that only other academics can possibly <laughs> ever understand. So I was still involved in that. But once I retired and I asked Lyle, well, what are you doing now? And what are your plans for, for the future now that we're both retired? And he said, let's write that book we talked about. And that was the right time to write the book, being it was in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, it was very cathartic for both of us to be writing this book. Thank you, David. Cathartic is an interesting, interesting concept. Emotional release. There is significant emotions involved in talking about money. And most financial advisors don't have the kind of training that allows them to engage in catharsis. (laughs) They're trained to deal with Monte Carlo simulations. And I'm, I'm not discounting this. It's very, very important. They need to do that. But what total wealth is getting in and what David's journey talked about in my journey is there's something that it goes beyond that, that all clients are demanding and rightly so. And, and what they're saying is, I need you to understand the fears, the concerns, the pain that, I'm, that I have as a human being involved with my family and, and money is, is involved with that. As you guys are both talking and I'm thinking about the book and how you structured it, it makes me just think about how, you know, you believe, which I believe as well, financial literacy on the technical side is important, but underneath that, there's a human that's also important. And you do such a good job touching on both the technical side and the human side. And I think that's, that's why it's resonating with people. 
can we can we give an example of the yin and yang or the left for, or the left versus right pages? Because I want the listeners to understand is that on the the left hand side there's a financial term as we've been talking. David wrote it in a 400 words or less that d- describes it very well. And then the right hand side is what Lyle puts it in the human words. So. Could you give them an example? Um, we had a call before. We talked about the annuity. Maybe we use annuity or whatever other term you guys feel like uh, talking about. But just so everyone understands what, what the book kind of looks like. The reason I suggest that is we had a Kiplinger review that was very, very flattering. And the Kiplinger reviewer picked up the annuity oh, as, okay. as, a, as a model. David, why don't you do the left-hand page? I'll do the right-hand page. Well, with the annuity, uh, I guess most people understand what the basic structure of an annuity is. In financial terms, it's a series of financial payments. It can be uh, a finite series. It can be a growing annuity. But it's a series, a stream of financial payments. And Lyle took that to write about an emotional annuity, which are the a stream of, of expression of, of expressions of affection that couples have where every day, uh, you don't have to say I love you every day, but every day you do little things that become like an emotional annuity and basically are, are reaffirming uh, the love that a couple has for each other. So we have a financial annuity, a stream of financial payments, monetary payments, and you have an emotional annuity, which are just the day-to-day expressions of indirect expressions of love that couples perform for the benefit of each other. I'll share another example. Another major concept in for financial literacy is compound interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, why don't you get the compound interest uh, Summary and I'll go to the right hand page. Well, compound interest is the notion that you know you put money in the bank and it earns interest in the first year, and then in the second year, your the money you put in earns interest, but the interest earns interest also. And the idea of compound interest has been you know phrased by people like Warren Buffett and Albert Einstein, calling it the eighth wonder of the world. And, and it is truly remarkable. There's a, a chart in in the, in the book back in the footnotes that shows the miracle of compound interest because eventually, over forty or fifty years, the amount of interest you earn on interest dwarfs everything else, and it just grows exponentially. That's the idea of compound interest. It just, you know, the interest earns interest. So on the right-hand page, and I'm glad David did this, because on the right-hand page, we're talking about habits and how, how habits are the compound interest of change, that we, we engage in behavior that either allows us to, towards positive outcomes or negative outcomes, that if we do the wrong things, those two have a compounding effect. The idea of building upon building, be it money or behavior, again, is yin-yang. It's so good. I, I really enjoy how you've structured this. The other one that stands out, and, and then we'll, we'll let people buy the book to see the rest, but was income statement. I thought this one, this one really spoke to me. And I, I've pulled out a quote from the book, if you don't really recall, on the right-hand side as much, Lyle. But uh, David, let's start with your side. What do, what do people usually think about when they think income statement? I think most people don't have a clue what it is. I, <laughs> I was actually going to say, maybe they don't even think about it. <laughs> I know a lot of people that if I asked them what is an income statement, they wouldn't have a clue. But yeah, but yeah an income statement is uh, 
it, it occurs over a period of time. And during that period of time, you have inflows and outflows, revenues and expenses. And in the end, you hope that your revenues exceed your expenses so that you end up with a, a profit. And from a financial point of view, I mean, that's the basic idea of an income statement. So it measures performance. It measures performance over a period of time. And from an emotional side, it's focusing on what's important and what's not important and realizing what you want out of life and uh, understanding that you have power to make changes on what's happening. Lyle, I pulled a, a section out and it spoke to me because often a lot of our, our financial technical lives, they're very scorecard basis. And that's what you talked about in the book is scorecards. And income statement for, for sure is like, look at the scorecard of my financial health. But you say here, but there's a downside to assessing performance based on numerical scores. The score represents the performance. It is not the actual performance. I'll extend that because that, that was a sports metaphor. But if you've had a physical exam recently and you get some lab tests, you get some numbers. Do those numbers tell you about your health? Yes and no. They are talking about the chemistry of your body. They're talking about what's happening with your DNA. They're talking about yourself. But are they really talking about your total health? And, and that's, that's what we were getting at when we we're talking about numbers and scorecards and drawing inferences from them. And financial planners are, are giving their clients a 50-page document, a narrative of finances. And that's a narrative based on numbers. But the answer is yes and no. It's, yeah. it's numbers, but the numbers both reveal and they conceal. And and that and again, that the the, the yin yang is is carried throughout. But Sean, thank you for picking that up. I have three or four personal favorites in the book, and actually, the scorecard is one of them. Yeah, it spoke to me because we all always like, what's your savings rate? The financial independence retire early. Great philosophy behind it, but it's all score. A lot of it's scorecard, and in the sense of what's your fire number. That's when you can retire early. Often we look at that tangible scorecard, but underneath there's so much more. That if we're missing, do the scorecards matter? And it brings me back to that annuity. I just really enjoy that emotional deposits of like continuously like forever payment of emotional deposits because you could have the best paying annuity that pays you whatever $1,000 a month in perpetuity forever. But if you don't have someone to enjoy that with, because you didn't put the emotional annuity in place. What good is it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading from, from the book here about the income statement, the yang on the income statement. And like Lyle says, you know, the income statement doesn't address all the blood, sweat, and tears that produce those numbers. Performance based on a number doesn't take into account the humanity behind that number. What seems to be a poor performance or a mediocre performance, but you have no idea how much effort went into achieving that number. And the, the income statement itself doesn't reflect all the effort, all the humanity that went into producing that, the numbers of that income statement. Mm. I want to go off this idea of producing those numbers. It seems like there is this social narrative of the pursuit of money or falling in what people have called the rat race of trying to make money, earn money, save money so that one day we can get the golden retirement. And I, I don't want this to come across that I don't think money is an important part of our lives and well-being because if we look at the research, it's clear money plays a huge impact in our individual life, especially when we look at the basic needs. It's essential. There's a huge correlation between money earned and 
making your basic necessities. If we look at research after a certain point, which is kind of a vague number, depending on where you are, but the idea is that correlation starts to weaken between happiness or well-being and money. During your time as a professor, researcher, or writing this book, what have you guys learned, if anything at all, about the things that people do in the pursuit of this financial wealth that may lead to dissatisfaction or perhaps just not feeling content in life? Let me take the counter-argument. What is it that people do that destroys total wealth? One of the things is they don't value the importance of relationships. They don't value the importance of, of human bonding. When I think about all the financially wealthy people that I know personally, and I, I, know, I know many, many millionaires, the happiest millionaires I know are happy not because of their, <laughs> their income statement, but because of the social network they have. They have the money, but beyond the money, they have the social network. So I, I think one of the lessons is they understand the importance of sharing, sharing emotions, sharing conversations. That is why the senior citizen movement, <laughs> given my age and David's age, that's becoming a more attractive option. <laughs> but that is why the whole community of, of, of aging and retirement is, yes, it's focusing on financial importance, but they're also looking at the human side of it. So you, you look at the communities that are building up around the country based on communal living, based upon creating relationships that allow you to have a wealthy life beyond cashing your social security check every month. Yeah, this, this idea of being individual living, one family per household unit is relatively a new phenomenon. I mean, for most of human history, we lived in tribal groups or in relationships with other families. Last night, we had dinner with some friends and the subject came up about an issue that's uh, occurring here in the United States with should members of Congress be allowed to buy and sell stocks. And there have been several scandals where members of Congress basically traded on their inside information. And this notion of conflicts of interest or agency theory that pervade our book, it's, it's an example where uh, people lose their soul because they want to make money and they don't realize that in the process they're, they're trampling on on other people and exploiting other people for their own benefit. Uh, I'm not sure that was really addressing your your question, Sean, but it was a uh, it just triggered the thought when you asked it. You know what? No, I think it does because this pursuit of money can lead us to do things like you just described. We had a researcher who studies happiness, Dr. Robert Biswad Diener, and he he did a study that looked at. I can't remember what, I think it was Denmark, one of the Scandinavian countries, they looked at their levels of happiness, income versus the United States of America. And, and what they found is that the happy, happiest people, like the wealthiest people are quite happy in Denmark. And in the United States, they actually are. The, the bottom ones are quite unhappy in the United States. And in Denmark, they're, they're, they're relatively still happy. So the spread isn't as big. But what, what the research showed is that the larger that spread happens, more chance that the higher net worth people start to perceive this as unfair and they actually start to become dissatisfied with their, I guess, position with money. So like that gap, that disparity actually does impact the top group. And, and so this idea of 
we are meant to be in a relationship group. So back to these members of Congress, this pursuit of money, making them act on this insider trading is like a dopamine hit maybe, and it feels good. But the research, at least Dr. Biswadiners is showing us as we spread that, it actually does cause discontent inside of us because perhaps maybe it's we're these relational creatures that are meant to be living together and more parity perhaps makes us feel happier in the long run. I don't know. But Sean, that, that, that's interesting. I, I, and I, I read some of that research, the cross-cultural research about happiness in America versus happiness in other countries. And uh, I, think, I think that one of the things that happens as that gap between the haves and the have-nots increases is people start questioning, what does it mean to be a good person? What, what is the concept of self-worth? Am I a good person if I do not help my brother? Am I a good person if I'm financially wealthy and my, and my cupboard is filled with food, but my neighbor's cupboard is not? The concept of total wealth, now that I think about it, can be extended beyond the individual, and you can look at it on a macro level. The issue David raised about uh, conflicts of interest in Congress and Congress buying and selling stock, th- th- that's a macro kind of a problem because it affects society. And it goes back to the money, the pursuit of money. You can look at them from a macro perspective, the amount of things humans do that aren't necessarily could be, I don't want to say they're not good, but questionable. Yeah, it's questionable. Because of money, uh, the list is endless from a macro perspective. Wars, engaging in trade that's not fair, insider training, so or trading. It's just interesting that this pursuit of money is so strong and it can make us go against our fellow citizens. So anyhow, David, I think your answer uh, didn't answer my original question. Good. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, we all have a relationship with money. Often we ignore it because we really don't know it exists. What if anything has changed when you guys look at your personal relationship with money after writing this book? And I know I kind of asked a similar question, but specifically on your own relationship with money, has anything changed? I have all the money I need for the rest of my life. Are the things that I would want that I can't have, that I can't buy? I'm not so sure. My perspective of money has changed. I'll be honest with you, Sean. If you had told me 50 years ago that I have the money I have now, I'd say you're crazy. There's no way in the world I could have the money I have now. Well, I have the money I have now. I never thought I would have 50 years ago. Am I happier today? I am more financially secure today than I would have been 50 years ago. And my perspective on on wealth has changed. It's biased, but I'll own it. I am a stronger believer in the right-hand pages now than I was before I wrote them. I know more about the left-hand pages but having written the right-hand pages, I am a stronger believer in them. <laughs> mm, thank you. A decision that people make have to make in retirement is this annuity decision. Do you want to convert any of your financial wealth into an annuity? And frankly, I did. I've been asked by many friends why I did that, because if you Google around, you'll see all sorts of articles about avoid annuities, you know, like the plague. And there might be reasons for doing that, depending on who you're dealing with as your uh, provider of the annuity. I I have relatives who are teachers. I have friends who are teachers, and they had defined benefit 
retirement plans. When they retired, they got this annuity for the rest of their life. They never had to worry about running out of money. And there is something very, very comforting about knowing that for the rest of your life, you're going to get this steady stream of, of income. It doesn't work to maximize your wealth. I, I, 2020 hindsight, if I had kept everything in the stock market and not annuitized, I'd certainly have a lot more of money. But frankly, I'm, I sleep better and, and I'm just very, very content with the money that I do have without having had to maximize it by keeping it in, in stocks, which are a, a riskier asset class. And then, Sean, David raised an interesting phrase. Do you sleep better? Mm-hmm. I believe that people who have a balance between the financial wealth and their personal fulfillment sleep better. Mm-hmm. They have fewer regrets. They have fewer concerns. They feel better about themselves as a human being. They, they sleep better. <laughs> yeah. Let me give some personal advice to every financial advisor out there who's watch, who will be watching this podcast. You should help your clients sleep better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost it's like the best barometer there is. If you're sleeping well, you have a clean conscience, if you, you're, you're comfortable, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to go to sleep every night, sleep solidly for eight hours, and wake up the next day, feel refreshed. Who could ask for anything more? We need that sleep. David, as you were answering, as someone whose career, 40 years teaching finance, very much in the technical side, I hear a lot of right-hand page coming in to influence that answer of sleeping better. You feel more secure. So there's your total wealth. Lyle, I saw you post a quote on uh, LinkedIn. The quote is, are you drowned by not falling into a river, but staying submerged in it? Thank you for picking that up. That's Paul Kale- That's a Paul Kaleo quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also from the book. The reason I posted that and the reason I, I use that, as a matter of fact, that was one of the quotes we used when we talk about bankruptcy, people get into debt. People find themselves buying something, and then they realize, well, could I afford it? And I got to pay for it. The, the issue is not that all of a sudden you find yourself in a bad spot. The issue is whether or not you can extract yourself from that bad spot, whether or not you can pull yourself out. We're all human beings. We, we go through cycles. We have upsides, downsides. Things happen to us. Not every day... It's going to be a wonderful day. There are going to be some times where things happen to us that put us in a bad situation. The, the successful people, the happy people, the people that have fulfilling lives find a way to get out. So it's not that you fall in the river. You don't drown because you fall in. You drown because you can't get out. Mm. So we're coming to end here. I have a final question that I ask everybody. Before that, for both of you, if you have one ask or one hope or desire that comes about from this book to, to people who are going to engage with the book, what would that be? Well, it's, it's two things, and it's the yin and the yang. I think it's important that people improve their financial literacy, understand more about what finance is all about, just the basics of finance. For all the reasons you mentioned, Sean, at the very start of this conversation, and that is just to make sure that they know what their financial planners are doing, or they should know what they should do with their own money if they're managing their own money, avoid getting taken advantage of, and and so on. People need 
more financial literacy. But at the same time, you need all those yangs there just to inspire you to be happier in your non-financial life and to appreciate all those non-wealth items like love and relationships and honesty and trust, which are all these core human values and that drive the elements of non-financial wealth. So, you know, I hope that the book can accomplish both of those tasks for for a reader and um, just lead to people having happier lives. My hope for the book is, number one, I hope it starts a dialogue in families. I hope that people will say, we can now talk about money. Money doesn't have to be a taboo in a family, and it shouldn't be a taboo. And the other is to realize the importance of balance. It's easy for life to get out of balance. We all have appetites. We all want to do things. We all find ourselves engaged in behaviors that are good or bad. So those are the two things I'd like to come out of the book. Number one, that people engage in in a dialogue about what wealth means to them and to their families. And number two, to develop a healthy perspective. The dialogue is very important. Get people to start talking more about everything and anything uh, with each other, not get distraught over these items, but recognize that it's just a healthy thing to hear what your friends, your family are thinking, just to open up about all their, their joys and happinesses and their fears and unhappinesses. I think that dialogue is so important. And having a book like this almost in some sense gives people permission to talk about, to your words, David, the joy and the happiness, as opposed to just, yeah, my money life's good. And it's, it's excellent because we're, we're used to this taboo subject of money that we don't talk about, even though when we're suppressing it, it you know, that it, it gets expressed in a, I guess, more intense manner. So I appreciate you guys trying to get that dialogue going. And this book certainly does. And having these conversations do as well. As we, as we come to a conclusion here, I want to respect your guys' time. Each of you, if you can answer this, but imagine you're at that mortality that we talked about at the start, whatever age that is, and you're at somewhere, somewhere in the world that brings you peace, uh, looking at a mountain, lake, ocean, but you're on a front porch, somewhere in the world, doesn't matter where, wherever brings you peace. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money or total wealth, what would be a key element in that 100-word short essay, David, even shorter than 400? Well, the one word I'm thinking of is uh, satisfice. You don't have to maximize financial wealth. You should have enough financial wealth that to satisfy all of your needs, but pay attention to all of the non-financial items that bring you joy. And you're only around once in life, as far as we know anyway, you ought to enjoy all of these non-financial things that make you wealthy in non-financial ways. And it's just easy to lose sight of that. So appreciate what you have. Don't mm. lust for things that you don't have, but rather appreciate what you have. Your, your cup is always half full. Don't, and take, take it from that viewpoint. Don't think of it that your cup is half empty. And Sean, that's a wonderful question. And I'll, I'm going to take it and extend it. I, I would write the letter to my son, and the first sentence would be, what is the letter you would write to your son? Mm. And, the, and the focus would be continuity, generations, and the basis for all of that would be, what's really important in life? What is really important in life? 
And that, that, that letter is a legacy. The David earlier quote about the last page of our book, it is about legacy. It is all about legacy. We're all here for a very short time. What difference does it make? What difference, what, what impact? What is the footprint you've left? Wow. What, is it, what is the scorecard you've left behind? Yeah. And it's the non-financial scorecard. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I have to say that when you guys are talking about compound interest, I started thinking, I was listening, but my mind was also thinking about just like with Mike, my kids are really young, three and five. And I have some friends who have older kids or I just know people with older kids in the t- early teenager years. And this could just be flawed, not flawed, but a naive young parent. But uh, I was thinking like, you know, as those challenging teenager years comes, if that compound interest was built like relationship time with your kids as they're younger as being there present. I was just like thinking, I wonder if that compounds grows where that bond of that trust and transparency that we talked about earlier can uh, make those potentially difficult years a little, little smoother. That was just going through my head, but I was thinking compound interest just with your kids. Good food for thought for parents. Yeah. Sean, that's the book you're going to write. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Where can people find your book, information about you guys? Where would you point people who are interested in learning more about Your Total Wealth? Uh, Well, we have a website, yourtotalwealth.com. There's some blog items there that some of the readers, some some of your um, listeners might find interesting uh, that go beyond the book. At that website also is our biographies, information about us. So uh, it's just www.yourtotalwealth.com. Wonderful. I'll put everything in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time. And really, thank you for writing this book. Thank you, thank you for having us. Thank you. I told you, what a great conversation. David and Lyle, both really, really care about their book and the work they're doing. And you can hear it through their tone, their voice, and just how much they love the work they're doing right now. I highly suggest everyone heads over to Total Wealth. I have the link in the show notes, or just go to Amazon and type in your Total Wealth and the book will come up. Now, you could also ask your local bookstore to bring in this book because it's great and wonderful to support those local bookstores. Until next week, have yourself a good one.